Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday. It is November the 14th, and as always, thanks so much for joining me. I have a good show lined up today. In about 10 minutes, I'll be talking about the annual Hunger Count Report. Food Banks Canada released it this week, which shows a number of concerning statistics. I will have the Executive Director of Food Banks BC on with me to help break down some of those stats, including how more than 80,000 individuals in the province are using food banks each month. Almost one in three of those is a child and a number of single-person households that are now using food banks account for nearly half of all food bank users, which is up considerably from the 38% that was accounted for in 2010. So Laura Lansink will be joining me in a little bit. To kick off the back half of the program, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jeff Soloway. He is a consultant offering mindfulness-based workshops and programs for professionals in the workplace. Did you know that studies have shown one million Canadians miss work every day due to stress-related illness, which costs the economy about $50 billion a year? Well, Jeff will be talking to me about what can be done to help keep your mind in shape and ensure you're able to get to work and do your job. And to end off today's show, I'll be joined by the Economic Development and Tourism Manager for the City of Merritt, Mr. Will George. Merritt City Council has tasked staff with looking at how to go about implementing municipal regional district tax, or a hotel tax, if you will. Merritt used to have a hotel tax in place, but it was removed due to some logistical issues. But now, with the new council in place, it is exploring options to put it back in action. So Will and I will be talking about that, among other things that are happening in the Merritt community. But to begin today's program, I am talking about vaping. Yes, it is a subject that maybe has gotten a lot of media attention in recent months and it's continuing to draw up discussion. In the province, the if the province put a ban in place today on the sale of vaping products, would you be okay with that? Would you date someone who vapes? Well, a research company went about uh, finding just how many people in Canada feel about different things when it comes to the subject of vaping and I'm here now with the president of Research Co, Mario Kinsenko. Mario, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, thanks for being here. So uh, maybe let's just start with the issue of vaping. I mean, how are Canadians feeling about, uh, you know, the issue of vaping and, and you know, just the, about, uh, how do we say this? How do, how do people feel about it? I mean, are people against vaping here in, in Canada? Well, it's interesting because we asked this question last year and we saw that the attitudes of most Canadians towards vaping were already negative. We didn't see a lot of people who were actually using e-cigarettes. Uh, we saw a high level of support for what the federal government was doing as far as uh, specific places where you could use e-cigarettes. And this year, after all of the health uh, situations that we've seen reported in the U.S. and Canada, the numbers didn't really fluctuate that much. So there's always been a, a, a little bit of a negative view of a, a vaping in general when it comes to uh, a Canada. And there's a high level of support for doing more than what the federal government has been doing up to this point. Yeah, I don't think that's overly surprising. You said it hasn't changed much in the last year, but uh, specifically when we look at the last few months and the attention it's gotten, uh, I'm not surprised that people are, are, are pretty negative when it comes to the subject of vaping. Um, I guess, what did you find in terms of people who would uh, like to see a ban on this? I mean, there's a lot of people out there who probably think, you know, vaping shouldn't be allowed, period. So what kind of information were you able to find in your research? Well, there's three out of four Canadians, 74%, who would like to do something similar to what happened in the state of Massachusetts in the U.S., uh, which is enacting a, a temporary ban. Uh, the level of support is high all over the nation, uh, from 71% in Alberta to 77% in Atlantic Canada. And this is based on this decision that was taken by the governor in the state, uh, whose name is uh, Charlie Baker, 
who said, look, we need to look more into this issue. There's been cases of severe lung damage in some of the residents of the state, and we believe that it's in our best interest to ban this for a while and do a little bit more research to know the long-term effects of this particular practice. Yeah, for those that don't know, Massachusetts House lawmakers recently approved a bill that would ban the sale of all flavored tobacco products while also imposing a new 75% excise tax on nicotine vaping products just to kind of help deter people from using these products as well. So uh, obviously some steps being taken south of the border, at least in one state, and uh, some people in Canada feel that we should be taking the same action here uh, in Canada. I mean, uh, also, I guess it's kind of being looked at almost in the same view or the same light as smoking at this point. I mean, talk about how people feel about where people should be allowed to vape because a lot of people think you know if they're a, if they're a vape user that they can do so indoors it's just a, a water vapor it's not going to harm anyone but that's not the uh that's not the view of the general population it is not we see 73 percent of canadians who want e-cigarettes to be restricted to areas where smoking is currently allowed uh there's also a lot of concern about flavored vaping products uh you know there's a, a situation in, in many u.s states where uh, marketing and advertising uh, wasn't really done in the best uh, way uh, to stop young people from trying some of these uh, e-cigarettes. And uh, now we see that 50 per- 57% of Canadians would like to see all flavored vaping products banned in the country. So it's not a situation that is going to be easy. And, and what is ironic in my view is this actually started live as an option for those who are trying to quit smoking, and it has now developed in specific areas of the U.S. into a full-blown health crisis. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely um, something that I think uh, a lot of people talk about is, you know, it's uh, vaping, although it's bad, it is a good way for people to, uh, you know, who are trying to quit. It's a, it's a nice way to transition off of tobacco products and off of cigarettes themselves and into uh, a vaping product, but now it's almost turned into just a completely different habit where instead of people starting to smoke, they're just starting to vape instead. So, uh, obviously, it's a almost a brand new issue here for uh, for people here in, in, in 2019. Um, I also wanted to ask you, too, about uh, the issue of, uh, of dating. I know when it comes to cigarettes, a lot of people out there say that is their number one deal breaker, is anyone who smokes, they don't want to date. Um, that almost seems to be the trend, too, when it comes to vaping now. It is. We have find 50% of Canadians who say they would not consider dating somebody who used electronic cigarettes. Uh, the highest proportion across the country is observed in British Columbia at 54%. And it's actually pretty high when it comes to those in the dating age, so to speak. There's uh, 47% of those aged 18 to 34 who were actually shown a dating a a prospect because of vaping. So uh, it's not a situation uh, that recalls the way we used to look at smoking in the 50s and 60s, where it was almost something that was very classy and, and, and something that was seen in a much more positive light before we found out about the dangers of, of uh, cigarettes. Uh, now this is happening all, all already. You know, they, it's a situation now where uh, there's half of us who say, I would not like to date somebody who, was, uh, who used the e-cigarettes. All right. So for those out there looking to uh, get, get someone to go out on a date with them, I guess, uh, you know, you're, you're cutting your potential mates in half by vaping. So there you go. There's a, an interesting stat for you if you're a single person looking to looking to get out there on the market. Um, I guess, uh, does this change based on gender at all? Is there, uh, you know, do, do women or men particularly feel um, more against vaping than, than the other gender? 
No, there was no gender gap on this question, which was quite interesting. There's not a lot of change when you look at it. Uh, it's actually a little bit higher with age. If you're over 55, you're more likely to not be considering someone as a dating prospect, but it was 50% for both men and women, and a little bit higher here in BC than in other parts of the country. So it's even more uh, complicated for those who use e-cigarettes to find a date in this province than in other areas of the country. <laughs> Definitely some interesting stuff here, Mario. Anything else that, you know, stood out to you when you were looking through, uh, you know, how Canadians are feeling about vaping, the subject of vaping and vaping products in general? Was there any other specific stats that stood out to you while you were doing this research? Well, I was very surprised at the numbers uh, when it comes to the ban. Uh, and it's a high level of support for this. I think there's a lot of concern about the long-term effects of this specific issue. And, and we didn't see a lot of changes in the use of e-cigarettes. There's only 11% of uh, Canadians who uh, had an e-cigarette over the past 12 months, so the numbers have been remarkably steady. It's not as if this is something that is uh, becoming a more a, a uh, something that many Canadians do. Uh, it's uh, essentially at the same level that it was last year, and many Canadians just don't like it. Yeah, fair enough. So, um Definitely a habit that many people are getting into, but at least it's not uh, increasing too much, and it's not surprising given the media coverage about vaping and the issues and concerns around the health um, impacts of vaping that we've seen over the last little while. So some good stuff here, Mario. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate taking the time. Always, uh, always have some good stats to, to throw out there. So I always like having you on, and thanks so much for doing this today. My pleasure, anytime. Awesome. That was Mario Conseco, the president of Research Company, talking about vaping. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting stuff out there when it comes to vaping and, and the, the stats that are out there. 50% of people say they wouldn't date someone who vapes, and that number increases to 54% here in British Columbia. So if you're looking for a, a dating partner, uh, maybe maybe put the e-cig away because it'll, it'll help increase your, your prospective chances of finding someone to go out with you. All right, well, coming up after the break, this year's annual hunger count is out, and the stats are... Not great. One person being forced to use a food bank is probably too many, but the numbers go far beyond that. I'll be joined by the Executive Director of Food Banks BC to talk about the situation as it is in the province after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the show here on Thursday, November the 14th. The rate of food bank use has hit a record high among single-person households, even as overall food bank use has stabilized. Hunger Count 2019, an annual report released by Food Banks Canada, which analyzes data from almost 5,000 food banks across Canada, revealed that single-person households now account for nearly half of all food bank users, which is up considerably from about 38%, which was recorded in 2010. Do those national trends translate here in BC? And there's also so a lot more interesting stats out there than just the number of single persons that are using food banks. Well, here to help break down some of that information is Executive Director of BC Food Banks, Laura Lansing. Laura, thanks so much for coming on with me. Oh, thanks for having me today, Jeff. Yeah, so like I said, there are a number of different ways that we could begin this conversation, but I'll start with that one stat mentioned off the top. Uh, the number of single people accessing food banks is up quite a bit over the last, you know, decade, essentially, I guess. Uh, is that uh, the same case that we're seeing here here in BC? And how alarming is it, you know, that, that single persons are accessing food banks at this rate? It is. In fact, uh, just over 50% uh, of the people that are using the food banks here in BC are uh, single people, so single families. And what it highlights is that they simply don't have enough income to be able to go out and purchase the food that, that you and I just take for granted. 
I mean, what do you think is the, the reasoning behind that? I mean, you mentioned obviously they don't have enough income, but just when you think of a single person, you would almost feel like they only have to take care of themselves. If anyone should be able to buy food, you know, it's it's someone who uh, hopefully you would think, you know, doesn't spend money on uh, on a lot of other things because they only have to look after themselves. But yet uh, that seems to be one of the, the areas where they're, you know, postponing buying food. Absolutely. When we look at those single people, uh, the, the first thing that comes up is affordable housing. And we see this all the time now in the news. It's, there is a, a lack of affordable housing. And when you see these people, and many of them are working, some more than one job, but when those jobs are only paying a minimum wage or they are on some sort of a, a disability income, uh, that simply doesn't make it to the end of the month um, f- to buy groceries. And, um, you know, their, their money has run out and they've still got another week left and they're hungry. And so these people are then forced to turn to uh, a food bank in order to make sure that they have some food on their table. Yeah, and, and we, we mentioned this, uh, or we talked about this yesterday when we were chatting before before today, uh, just the number of people who are accessing food banks on a month-to-month basis, uh, quite alarming numbers. Um, you know, can you just break, to, break them down for me a little bit? Uh, 124,000, I believe it was, visits per month, mm-hmm. uh, and that translates to about 80,000 individuals. Absolutely. It's a disturbing number to think that in a province that is as rich as BC is, 80,000 people every single month are needing to go to a food bank. And, um, you know, there, there are other people that are not going to a food bank. People are hungry. It's a very uh, hidden issue. Uh, these people are our neighbors. They're our coworkers. They are the families that our own children go to school with. And yet um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a sad state of affairs, and it's very disturbing to us. Yeah, and, and I think one way to really bring it home is when you talk about the number of kids that are, you know, having to use this type of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned like almost one in two or, or over one in two is a single person, but one in three is, is a child. So, I mean, obviously a big concern there when it comes to the number of youth who are, who are forced to, to access food banks on a monthly basis. Yeah, every one of those, one out of every three of those 80,000 is a child. And when you think about children having to go to a food bank, that's the time that their bodies are growing and we need nutrition. We need to make sure that these kids are never uh, at risk of hunger. They don't do well in school. Um, they don't do well generally if, if they're going hungry. And um, that's why our food banks are here to make sure that that never happens for anybody. Um, uh- do you have any idea sort of what the, the breakdown is here in, in Kamloops? I know, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at BC as a whole. I'm just curious if you have any stats as it relates to Kamloops itself. Do these provincial trends translate here? Um, these, the, the BC trends that I'm speaking of are, are general from um, general for the province. Um, every uh, community is uh, quite unique. Mm-hmm. There are some that um, are finding a, a steep increase. That might be a community that perhaps um, a major business has gone on strike or perhaps something, uh, you know, one of the employers has gone out of business. Um, there are some that are doing better um, and it really does vary uh, city by city and um, I, I don't have particular stats yeah. on, each, on, on each city but, um, you know, folks, if they, in every community that are listening, Go down and visit your local food bank. Find out what's going on. They need your help, um, volunteering, money, food. Um, it's, uh, it's like I said, it's a bit of a hidden issue, and uh, but it's out there, and it's, um, it's always glad to really highlight the need that's out there. 
Yeah, sorry if I put you on the spot a little bit there. I do have the executive director of the Kamloops Food Bank coming on with me tomorrow. So for those mm. looking for those stats, what can they can tune in tomorrow morning and they'll get a little bit more about that specifically. But I just thought I would ask while I have you here. Um, mm. uh, one also concerning stat to me, and it's not a surprise by any means, but it's still kind of a, a thing that bothers my brain a little bit. More than half of people accessing food banks in BC are on either social assistance or disability. I mean... That just goes to show that people who are, you know, taking advantage of these programs are not getting any kind of free ride that some people out there may think when they're getting government checks that, you know, they're, they're, they're abusing the system or whatever the case may be. That is clearly not what is happening, considering that they have to access food banks um, on, on a monthly basis. I mean, how concerned are you when it comes to the fact that people who are on these social assistance programs are just unable to feed themselves? It's very concerning. Uh, we we need to make sure that we look after, as a society, we're looking after every individual that is living here in BC. Um, so whether they are on some sort of a disability income, whether they are working at that minimum wage job, everybody deserves to be able to uh, do what, like what you and I do, which is go to the store, choose the foods that they want, and purchase them, and um, without sacrificing um, something else. People People, people need to pay their rent, and 75% of the people that are using food banks in BC um, are in rental housing. So you, you've got to pay your rent, you've got to pay your hydro, you've got to pay your car insurance. You need a phone because you have to, you have to work, you have to get back and forth. What falls through the cracks is that money is used up um, when you're on a disability income or, a, or, or you're a retired um, senior or you're a family or and what you um what you have left at the end of the month simply isn't going far enough and food food is the thing that uh that gives way and and people go hungry parents go hungry so their kids can eat yeah yeah yeah. I'll just end it off here because we only have about a minute left and I did want to ask you this one specific question. Now, the mm -hmm. Hunger Count 2019 report, obviously we're not going to solve hungers, uh, you know, in the immediate near future, but there are some ways in this report that it mentions that we can sort of uh, move towards at least a solution. Can you kind of just go over just very, very briefly just some of the ways that we can look to improve the situation right now? What are some of the suggestions that are out there? Well, uh, uh, first of all, we have to make sure that um, we want food bags to close. We, we, we don't want this to go on. We want people to be able to live, um, you know, in, in a way that, that, um, that they deserve. We need lower child care costs. It's very expensive for those single parents. Uh, we need that affordable housing. We need to make sure that that minimum wage or disability income or unemployment income is sufficient so that people can live with dignity and they can um, uh, pay, you know, pay their way. That's what they want to do. No one wants to go to a food bank, but I'm so grateful that the food bank is there for when they need it. Yeah, and it is the, the time of year where more and more people are going to be thinking about giving to a food bank, which is always great, but of course this isn't a problem that is isolated to, uh, to the holiday season. It's something that is uh, uh, an annual, year-long issue that uh, people should keep in mind. So thanks so much for doing this, Laura. I'm sure we could have talked for another 10 minutes or so about this, but unfortunately we are out of time. But I really appreciate you coming on with me and, and sharing some of this information. I think it's really important and it's, it's good to get it out there. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jeff. Awesome. That was Laura Lansing, the Executive Director of BC Food Banks. Coming up after the break, how healthy is your mind and is it causing you to miss work? Well, maybe there are some things you can do to improve your mental state at the workplace. So stick around. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas.
Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. It is Thursday, November 14th, and as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Dr. Jeff Soloway has been working in the area of health promotion, mindfulness, and well-being for about 20 years. He completed his PhD on mindfulness and has a Master's of Education on Holistic Education. He's worked as an instructor at both the uh, University of Toronto and at UBC as a consultant offering mindfulness-based workshops and programs for professionals in the workplace. The man behind the organization, Mindwell You, joins me now by phone. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we could kind of talk about here, but let's start with this. There are estimates out there that uh, one out of four adults suffer from some kind of mental illness. What kind of impact does this have on Canadians? And, and we'll, we'll focus on the workplace here. So what, what kind of impact does that have on the Canadian workplace? Well, we've seen some uh, staggering uh, numbers in terms of the impact on productivity in the workplace. Uh, from Canadian statistics, we look at numbers like uh, over $50 billion to lost productivity, and I've seen values over a trillion dollars on the uh, on a more global economic impact uh, from mental health in the workplace. We see things like 500 numbers, 500,000 Canadians miss work uh, each week uh, due to a mental health problem, and I mean, that has significant um, impacts on pers- uh, people, like uh, personal lives, as well as the organizational impact. Yeah, so obviously something that employers, uh, are, I'm sure, are paying attention to, the amount of work that is missed as a result of mental health issues. So from your perspective with MindWellU, I guess, what, what are your suggestions to help that, uh, that number go down? Obviously, uh, you know, the, we want to see less people missing work for mental health reasons. Um, so what, what kind of suggestions do you have and what kind of um, work does your organization do to help make sure that people are mentally fit? Yeah, it's definitely becoming a bigger part of the conversation these days, uh, mental health uh, training uh, for the workplace. So it's great to great to see that, that organizations are paying attention. And um, we've seen a lot of work in this area over the past five years, and most of the work around mental health has been around raising awareness about mental health and reducing the stigma around mental health. And I feel like now we're at that stage to take that next step, and that next step is building the skills for mental health. And that's really where MindWellU comes in, and our organization is uh, all focused on developing the skills of mental health through the practice of mindfulness. And we understand mindfulness to be this core competency in the workplace. It's this ability for uh, bringing ourselves back present in our lives, um, regulating ourselves, and reducing the amount of uh, noise that uh, kind of distracts us and keeps our, our minds busy. Um, is there a particular age group, do you think, that maybe is more susceptible? I know there was some, some chat in that uh, millennials, I guess, make up some of the, or, or do make up the majority of the workforce in this country now, people born, born uh, in 1980 or later. Uh, is there any particular um, age group that maybe is, is more susceptible to mental health? I don't want to necessarily say it's an age thing, but uh, just curious if there might be any stats on that. Well, we've seen, um, we've seen that millennials are kind of coined as the most stressed out uh, age group and they're also uh you know making up a large majority of our workplace so it makes sense that uh we're also seeing higher numbers in in mental health cases uh within the workplace and i mean uh this uh this millennial group um growing up today i mean they've had one unique uh, part of their upbringing which is this rise of technology and you know having smartphones on them and i'm not reducing everything to a, a smartphone but I think we just don't know really the impact of being hyper-connected these days and the impact on our brains. I mean, uh, always reaching and having instant uh, instant connection, all this information, and always being connected. 
we, we really don't know the impact uh, that that has on our on our brains and our on our attention level. So um, I think it's still something that we're we're finding out about, but. I think that uh, we will find find out that there are, it is a significant impact on our brains, our attention, um, and consequently, uh, the impact on our attentional networks in our brain affects our well-being, triggering our stress response, and and that's uh, that's a route to both physical and mental health problems. Yeah, like you had mentioned, being constantly connected can definitely be a, a stress trigger. I mean, uh, you, you back in the day, you know, you'd punch out at 5 o'clock and then you didn't have to think about work until you punch back in at 9 the next day. But but now your work pretty much seems to follow you and that can obviously have some impacts, um, you know, just on your ability to think about something besides work, which can which can have a, a stressful impact on people's lives. What, what kind of... Um, advice, I guess, would you give for people who maybe are feeling like they are overconnected and are overworked and are constantly having to pay attention to their emails when they go home and, and, and all that stuff? I mean, you're not going to tell them to stop working and you probably, uh, you know, you could say put your phone down for a while, but it's probably, uh, that might be a little bit of an oversimplification. So what kind of, uh, I guess, tips and tricks and techniques do you have for people who are feeling stressed out from the over or constant connectivity and, and what can they do to, to maybe take themselves out of that, that mindset for a little bit? Yeah, well, we, we teach a practice uh, of mindfulness and a practice called Take Five, which uh, is a learned skill. And I think what we need to do is we need to realize that we need to train ourselves just like we train ourselves to be physically fit. We need to train ourselves to be mentally fit. And being mentally fit is recognizing when uh, thoughts are coming into our mind about about work, when we're not at work, and learning to let those go um, learning to let go of the impulse to kind of reach for our phones and check email out of out of um, work times, and 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 refocusing our uh, refocusing our attention in uh, practices that help us regulate um, and help us calm and clear our minds a bit. So we we teach people this uh, practice of take five on our thirty day mindfulness challenge. This is a program that we actually provide to employers that uh, employers provide to whole organizations so that they do this training in mindfulness and they learn this take five practice and they make it part of uh, part of their life that's our whole mission is to help people develop this new healthy habit in their life and it begins with learning skills of um, bringing your attention more into your body uh, learning to uh, follow your breathing for a few moments noticing uh, your mindset and adopting a mindset of being more non-judgmental of uh, being more patient uh, in the moment uh, so there are these tools of mindfulness that we can learn and we can train ourselves in just like we were training at the at the mental gym we need to do these exercises over and over on a, on a daily basis in order to get better at it but the positive news is there's a ton of science and research to show that our brains can change as a result of this training. This is not uh, hokey pokey stuff. This is this is real stuff. Our brains will literally change in structure and function when we exercise it in certain ways. And just like if you're at the gym and you're doing a bicep curl, and you know you don't just do one bicep curl. You do a lot of bicep curls in, uh, in order to build that muscle. Well, with mindfulness, we need to practice it uh, on a regular basis in order to strengthen the muscle of mindfulness. 
here with Jeff Soloway of Mindwell U. So, uh, like you had mentioned, you know, a lot of people don't like going to the gym. You know, it's uh, it's uh, something that people do because they have to more so than they want to oftentimes. I mean, maybe eventually you sort of get into that mindset after doing it for a long time and making it part of your routine that you start to enjoy going there, right? Uh, is that, do you think that, you know, correlates or transponds or translates, sorry, if you will, to, uh, to the mental gym, so to speak? Do you think if you, if you kind of do it for a while and you do some of these exercises and you start putting it into to a routine and more of an everyday thing that it becomes something that, uh, you know, you actually enjoy doing? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting when you liken it to something even like uh, brushing your teeth. You know, at one point in time, brushing your teeth was uh, was a new behavior, and it took a long time to be adopted into uh, you know something that you do out of habit, and hopefully people brush their teeth at least twice a day. And I think that uh, mindfulness can become like that as well, where it just becomes uh, habitual. And I think one of the kickbacks that you get from mindfulness, which helps you keep... Uh, keep it up, which is similar to the gym, is that it makes you feel better. You know, it does make you feel calmer. And I think we're living in a world where a lot of people feel, including myself, feel anxious, uh, you know, potentially on a daily basis or a low mood or, you know, struggling with a busy mind. And um, these tools help us calm our nervous system, uh, calm our minds a bit. And, and that's immediate. Uh, that's immediate result. And when we start noticing that, that's what helps us keep it up. And when we do it within an organizational perspective, and uh, then it helps because other people around us are doing it. So it's a training perspective. And so we try and uh, when we work with organizations, it's more, it's not just about uh, mental health. It's also about a culture perspective. It's like everybody else around us is, is participating in, uh, in, uh, in this practice and that helps uh, build engagement and uh, accountability to keep up one's own practice. Um, when, when you obviously do a lot of uh, presentations and, and, and things to different different types of workers, people who work in a lot of different industries, and I'm just curious sort of what your thoughts are on this, because I know like when we're, we're liking this to the gym, one workout that works for one person might not work for somebody else. So when you're looking at different types of industries and different types of workers, do you have different plans in place for maybe you know someone who might be a, a first responder as a pair compared to someone who works in an office all day? Are there different techniques that you have for, for different you know, types of, of workers and maybe the stress levels that they might be going through? Or, or is it, uh, you know, very similar across the board? That's a great question. I really appreciate that. Um, and my answer is we teach one core practice, and it's this Take 5 practice in our training program. And it has different uh, tools to it, different components to it. Um, but what's unique is that it can get translated. Everybody can interpret the steps in their own way, and we encourage people to uh, customize uh, and personalize the steps so it makes sense to them. So a first responder, how they um, interpret and implement the, this practice of Take 5 is going to be different than uh, somebody who's working on the front lines or on the work site and the hard hat and how they uh, implement that, uh, that same step of Take 5. So everybody is going to experience uh, the tool in a different way and that's the whole point is to internalize it and personalize it but the fundamental steps of what we're pointing you towards are the same and I hope that makes sense 
I think it does. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I think it's something that more people need to, to think about. I mean, we, we like you had mentioned, we're always connected. And, and some people maybe don't think of the fact that, uh, you, you know, we are always there and always ready to answer an email when, when needed to. But maybe sometimes we just need to take a little more time to ourselves. And, and maybe more people just need to consider doing that as opposed to constantly wanting to be on their phone and, and seeing what uh, what the latest and greatest is that's, that's out there. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I'll give you one chance here, I guess, for people who want to know more and, and maybe learn more about MindWell U. Uh, where can they go? Yeah, MindWellU.com uh, is our website, and they can uh, they can learn more about us and uh, look into uh, taking a training. We've got a 30-day mindfulness challenge. We're actually launching a, a five-day mini challenge that you'll be able to take and just encourage people that who are, who are listening now, you know, if, if you struggle uh, on a day-to-day basis or just recognize that there are some simple skills that we can learn. Uh, mindfulness is this uh, new literacy that they're starting to teach in schools, and there are these simple skills that we can learn and, and incorporate into our, new, into our life that can help. And uh, as we move forward in mental health, uh, we don't all need to go uh, see a therapist or a counselor. There, there are ways and new tools that can be very helpful for us that are readily accessible. Good stuff, Jeff. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Have a great day. You as well. That was Dr. Jeff Soloway talking about mindfulness in the workplace. He is, of course, with the organization Mind Well You. Coming up after the break, I will be joined by Merritt's Economic Development and Tourism Manager to talk about a number of topics, including a new hotel tax in the community. So stick around. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Tuesday, November the 14th. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, a little bit of a change in the program here. When you write numbers down wrong, it's hard to get a hold of people. So I'm uh, having John Keane come in to pinch hit right now. John, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, I'm pretty good out of the out of the bullpen here. You know, um, usually able to uh, at least make contact and uh, maybe bring in a couple of runners uh, on base. So well, I appreciate you doing this. It's a bit of a shift from the original topic, so we're not going to be talking about merit tourism and Instead, oh, we're going to be bad. talking sports. So. That's too bad. Uh, Merritt's a great place. Uh, great rodeo grounds there. Spend a lot of time there in the summer. So. Yeah, definitely somewhere. I still haven't been there, so i got to go down and check okay, it out sure. at some point. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so what's going on for you right now? Um, you know, we've been watching the NHL recently. I know the Vancouver Canucks have been in the news here all morning. Yeah, Canucks, uh, of course, got the Dallas Stars tonight. Uh, there's no love lost there between those two organizations, at least with the ownership group, perhaps, with uh, Tom Gallardi and the Aquilinis, and uh, these are always big games. Uh, I know uh, Tom Gallardi likes to get the Stars in early and host them at his house and have a bit of a evening and a, a kind of a soiree, but I don't think that'll happen because they played last time Calgary and, and won, uh, so they come in a little bit hot. They've picked up uh, 17 points of their last 20 available, uh, and they'll take a Canucks team on that is playing pretty good, especially on home ice, and they come off that, that 5-3 win as well uh, back on Tuesday against Nashville. Yeah, I mean, you look at the Pacific Division right now. You got Edmonton at the top, Arizona two, Vancouver three. Who would have picked that off <laughs> yeah. the start of the season? Yeah, and if you're the Canucks, you're, you're tickled by that. 
uh, because really, does Arizona and Edmonton, do they really, do you think, have the staying power to kind of maintain that? Uh, but I guess the same questions are, are going to be asked about the Canucks as well to see if, uh, you know, to see if they can uh, continue what they've done, 10-6-3 through 19 games. And I think going into the season, Jeff, if you said, would you take the start, they would uh, undoubtedly, hands down, take that for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there was some talk this morning. I was listening to Howie's show a little bit before this, and uh, uh, I can't remember the writer's name who was on, but he was talking about how Quinn Hughes looks like a potential future Norris Trophy candidate because mm. uh, I don't think you can put him in that category just yet. Even though he's looked amazing to start the year, he's still a rookie. I, I think Calder maybe is the first uh, trophy on his list. Yeah, that was Don Taylor, a well-respected sportscaster there uh, down on the coast. And the, the reason, though, I think he's saying this is because has Vancouver, and he makes a great point, has Vancouver really had that number one, you know, hang your hat on defenseman here, Norris Trophy candidate? They haven't. You look back at their history, you know, he brought up Ed Jovanovsky as maybe being that guy, you know, uh, it, it really tough to say, is there a guy that's been a Norris Trophy guy? And and uh, for the Canucks, I think they have to be really excited because Quinn Hughes has come in and played pretty well for them. Yeah, definitely some uh, some future prospects here moving forward for the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, they're a young team. You got Pedersen, you got Hughes, you got Besser. These guys are all under the age of 25. Um, even Horvat is still, I think, only 24 years yeah, old, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this team definitely has some longevity, I think, ahead of it and definitely some good things to look forward to. Yeah, and Thatcher Demko in goal as well. Uh, he's not a prospect. He's there already, obviously, and uh, they feel that he's the goalie of the future. I've heard good things about, you know, him and his demeanor and uh, and how he sets up. So, you know, I feel they, I think they feel they have some blocks in place here. It's just a matter of, you know, it's still going to be a while where you can kind of run with the big dogs, right? But you know, they're catching kind of this NHL where some of those top teams we've seen for a number of years start to drop down. Like, you look at Chicago, right? Their window is closed, and, and now they're in rebuild mode a little bit here. Uh, you look at, um, you know, even San Jose, and, and there's teams that just kind of are are at the top of that pinnacle and maybe the last couple of years that are now sliding back. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the way it goes. I mean, as you get older, you, you just you can't seem to keep up. Look at Anaheim, how much they've fallen off in the last while. L.A., I mean, they yeah. were a Stanley Cup champs not that long exactly. ago, and now they're probably the worst team in hockey. I mean, them yeah. and Ottawa, I guess, are kind of yeah. going at it. Yeah. But uh, Ottawa at least has young players, whereas L.A. is, what, all 35-plus, yeah, it feels like. Exactly. So yeah. it's a bit rough. Um, well, I have you in here. I mean, the big news yesterday out of uh, junior hockey here, at least uh, when it comes to the Blazers, was uh, Pavel Novak getting handed that eight-game suspension. That's uh, a pretty significant thing here. I mean, you said it was the longest suspension in, in, what, the last eight, nine years or something like that? Well, it's, it's tied for the longest suspension in the last five seasons. Uh, before that, there was a a 12-game uh, suspension to Brandon McGee of the uh, Victoria Royals back in 2014 in the playoffs where he just randomly went around cross-checking players in the head in one shift and really went off there, and that was a big suspension. But uh, there's been two other eight-game suspensions, and now this being the third. Uh, we didn't know when the WHL was going to rule on this, and we didn't know how many games it was going to be. Many fans uh, think, okay, it's Kelowna. They get you know, extra special treatment from the league and things like that. So no one was anticipating an eight-game uh, suspension. So when it was handed down, I think it was a bit of an eye-opener, and I think it's the right number. I just, I think many people didn't believe the league would actually go there. Yeah, uh, definitely a big number, and uh, maybe it's important to point out, too, I mean, they do take injury into account, right, when they are looking at handing out these suspensions, and you had a chance to, to speak to Carl Sopatic, right, I believe? Yeah. Uh, how, know, how's he doing? He was a little reluctant to talk about it, you know, and, and you know, 
I understand completely why he might be. It's a bit emotional for him, uh, considering the team will take off here in a couple weeks uh, out on the prairies to uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. He's from Aberdeen, Saskatchewan, where you know the closest is Saskatoon. He played his midget hockey in Prince Albert, and he missed the last time because of injury. So he was hoping in his 18-year-old season this year that he would get that opportunity. And I think that's what you know bothers him the most about it is that he won't be ready for that trip. And and um, you know and and overall he's feeling good he, he he's at least has the perspective to say it could have been a whole lot worse yeah. based on it yeah so uh definitely disappointing anytime anyone gets injured but especially to be out to you know six to eight weeks that is a, a long long time to be sitting on the sidelines and forced to watch your team but at least cam loops has uh has proven that they uh you know are one of the top dogs in the whl so far and i'm sure they're going to continue to do that with uh Kyrill not in the lineup unfortunately but uh, i'm sure they'll they'll pack up some wins for him uh while he while he's out so yeah there's some great talent there for sure I spoke to his dad uh bobby sopatik yesterday he said and this is really refreshing from a parent to hear he's like the blazers have a lot of good young players they'll have no problem filling that role so that was pretty good Good stuff, John. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for pinch hitting there. I really appreciate you coming in. And uh, what do we got in store for this weekend? All right, yeah, tomorrow night hosting Prince George. So less than a thousand tickets for that game already. So Blazer fever is kind of sweeping the nation the nation right here. And then they'll go back into Kelowna for a rematch Saturday night first meeting since, of course, what we saw on Monday. Perfect. And we'll have you back in on Monday to break it all down. So we'll look forward to that. That was John Keane, our Blazers play-by-play announcer. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me, and a big thank you to all. All of you for listening, and my apologies to Will George with uh, to, uh, City of Merit. I'll have to give you a call and see if we can reconnect. So that, uh, like I said, wraps things up. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed her time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.